Hi y'all, welcome to the Hot Literati Podcast. The Hot Literati is my collective of cool, hot, well-read people. My name is Haley, and I'm so happy that you are here. So in today's episode, we're going to be discussing Elaine de Baton's book, Status Anxiety. I am a big fan of Elaine de Baton. The first book I ever read of his was On Love. I actually read it on my way to my freshman year of college. My family and I did a road trip. I feel like I read it at a very transformational time in life. And then I read How Proust Can Change Your Life. The following summer, the summer between my freshman and my sophomore year. That summer, I was about to live in New York to do two part-time internships. Um, so I was moving to a big city alone. Again, like a big point of transition. And then I read The Course of Love like a month or two later, which it's interesting. I've actually found I don't like to read the same author back to back like that because in my head, the work kind of blends together. I like to give space between works that I'm going to read by the same author. So for example, I love Nabokov, but I really don't like reading back to back Nabokov because I feel like the plots and the characters blend together in my head and I don't really remember like each book as its own entity. So yeah, it's a little tangential, but we're going to be discussing Elaine de Baton's book, Status Anxiety, which is the most recent book of his that I have read. Um, I read it my senior spring, and so last year, and I feel like I really enjoyed it because it's about something that we all experience at one point or another, especially if you're American. And, you know, Princeton is a very high-achieving school. There's this, like, kind of unspoken culture of competition within the social hierarchy and pressure to like immediately embark on a path that's considered successful to everyone around you and that's a stress that i was definitely feeling my senior year because a lot of my friends were signing job offers to work for like um you know consulting firms or finance companies which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that but um in my heart i know that i'm an artist and i'm a, I'm a writer i'm a reader and i wanted to find something that nurtures that and i feel like i'm in a good spot i'm actually living in germany right now um i recently moved and i'm working part-time for a film production company and i'm trying to write really consistently to get either a screenplay or some of my fiction published um so status anxiety for me was a really comforting book about getting in touch with my own values and my own identity and understanding why inevitably sometimes you feel pulled in all of these different directions but kind of being able to like anchor yourself with a path that's going to bring joy and fulfillment whatever that may look like for you the book itself is divided into two larger sections, clauses and solutions. And he starts off by defining status, defining status anxiety, and he presents his thesis regarding status anxiety. Um, that's one thing I love about Dubaton. I think that his work is always really well organized and as someone who's very type A, I really appreciate that <laughs> because it's also really simple to like go back and reference through it and remember where you found things that you found really interesting. So I want to start off by kind of just discussing some of the causes and I think I'm going to spend more time on those and then kind of glaze over some of the solutions but obviously I'm not going to go through the entire book because I would love it if y'all would 
reading and you know we can discuss it and have a back and forth about it on the hot literati tiktok or instagram the causes that he lists for his status anxiety are lovelessness expectation meritocracy snobbery and dependence yeah the first half of this book i feel like was incredibly eye-opening and let's just jump in with this idea of lovelessness so this first section that i'm going to talk about is already kind of a hard hitter um i remember the way i felt when i read this and i kind of felt like someone had like punched me in the gut because it's so true he essentially says that we pursue a relatively higher place in a social hierarchy as an attempt to accrue love he says that at the end of the day anything we do to achieve status is in the pursuit of attention and that attention being love, whether it is or isn't love. And this quote is really poignant. It says, to be shown love is to feel ourselves the object of concern. So he says that we pursue status as an attempt to earn attention and earn love. And he also says, the attentions of others matter to us because we are afflicted by a congenital uncertainty as to our own value as a result of which affliction, we tend to allow others' appraisals to play a determining role in how we see ourselves. Boiling that down, he basically calls all of us out saying, we are insecure. We don't feel that inherent value in ourselves sometimes. And that's why we feel this desperate need as people to seek out status and to seek out like a favorable place in this social hierarchy. I don't wanna make generalizations, and say like everyone feels like this all the time but i think it's fair to say that we've all at least felt like this at some point in our lives so that's this idea of lovelessness like we seek status because we want to feel loved jumping ahead to this idea of expectation de Baton argues that we expect to have a certain amount of success relative to the people around us like the people that we see as equal to ourselves and he calls those people our reference group so the example would be like if you have your class that you graduated high school with and someone goes on to be like a kajillionaire and you know them like you've known them since they were you know like a 14 year old you will probably envy that person because at one point in your life you considered that person and yourself on an equal playing field so if you see someone that you perceive yourself as similar to achieving something like that then you'll probably feel insecure about your own status relative to theirs um, and I definitely feel like this sometimes. I think one example that we all probably get is jealousy of like kids who are cast to play roles in movies <laughs> that we thought we could have played. Like when um, Amanda Sternberg was played, was cast to play Rue. I was like, oh my gosh, I can do that. No, like I had never acted in anything in my life, but you know, she was like a biracial girl. I was a biracial girl. She was playing in The Hunger Games. I like The Hunger Games. So I had a little bit of status anxiety there. And one thing that I definitely feel even to this day is like content creators that are in a similar niche as myself or see that they have like similar numbers to me. And then if they like have stuff that performs really, really well and they kind of surpass me and like accrue a really incredible following, like it's instinctive to be jealous it is because i perceived of us as similar and i think like what are they doing that i'm not doing where they're here and i'm here and i think it's a very natural reaction for the society that we that i at least have been brought up in and i think it's so healthy to be aware of that so then i can like correct that in my head and like be genuinely happy for other people 
but that's status anxiety. Those are examples of when I felt it, but I'm sure like, you know, everyone has felt it at least once throughout their life. So the next quick section that's a cause for status anxiety is meritocracy. Um, de Baton talks about how in a society where everyone is perceived of as equal and everyone is, you know, perceived as having mobility to an extent, um, not even to an extent, but just everyone's perceived of having like some sort of social or financial mobility, like inequality hurts more. It doesn't makes sense it's like not consistent with the values of the world or uh mobility and the ways that people move in a meritocracy is perceived of as their value as an individual what i'm saying or what he's saying in simpler terms is that in a society that is perceived of as a meritocracy when someone accrues like a large amount of status it is going to be ascribed to their value as an individual therefore like people with a higher status are going to be perceived of as like worth more and people with lower status are going to be perceived of as worth less that's something that we really see happening with the early years of america actually and let me pull out some quotes here yeah he quits one paper by um alexis de tocqueville who actually toured the u.s in the 1830s he wrote Democracy in America in 1835, and one chapter of it was titled, Why the Americans are often so restless in the midst of their prosperity. One quote is, when inequality is the general rule in society, the greatest inequalities attract no attention, but when everything is more or less level, the slightest variation is noticed. That is the reason for the strange melancholy often haunting inhabitants of democracies in the midst of abundance and of that disgust with life, sometimes gripping them even in calm and easy circumstances. In France, we are worried about increasing rate of suicides. In America, suicide is rare, but I am told that madness is commoner than everywhere else. Um, so yeah, keep in mind this is from 1830, but he's essentially saying like, in a society where there are already very clear, like social hierarchical divides, um, like the ruling class, the working class, the working class kind of accepts that they're working class and they're con content within that role. Like they know kind of the trajectory of their life as regards to their status and they're able to move within that and vice versa for the ruling class but he says that within america where there's this i mean now we know it's kind of a myth of mobility for just the general public everyone is essentially going to be stressed out all the time because if they think that they can move from working class to ruling class by just working hard enough but they're working really hard and they're not moving it's going to be stressful and that's an argument that de Baton really supports and develops in the section on meritocracy and to make things even wilder this philosophy was literally adopted by prominent christian thinkers um, and de Baton writes that protestant denominations literally preached that god demanded of his followers a life of achievement both temporal and spiritual so they basically were preaching that if people could earn enough money uh, during their time on earth, then that meant they like deserved to go to heaven. So like accruing ridiculous amounts of wealth was collapsed with this idea of being like a good Christian in the 19th century. <laughs> and I think it's almost fair to argue that 
you know, that subconscious belief still stands in American culture today. Like think about poverty, think about how people in poverty are continually demonized. It was not always like that. That idea developed with this idea of um, like social status being collapsed with your worth as an individual, which I mean, when you just think about it, is really kind of messed up. You know, like any other social concept, it was developed throughout time. It was continually um, reified over and over again. And now it's like a belief that we hold as a culture almost subconsciously. And it's really hard to challenge that subconscious belief unless you really take the time to educate yourself about like the origins of it and how it still stands today. So the next cause for status anxiety is snobbery. I mean, snobbery is really intuitive. He goes into a really interesting like history of the word, but what I'm kind of more invested in is this idea of how it makes us feel when like we are the victim of snobbery or we interact with it on a very like day-to-day -day level. De Baton really develops this idea that snobbery constructs this conditional attention. Like think about highbrow versus lowbrow. Like not everything can be highbrow because things that are highbrow won't be highbrow. Or think about like, I think today something that's more comparable would be like niche or um, esoteric, esoteric, esoteric versus mainstream. Like things that are mainstream now, like people don't really like them. And uh, you could argue that that's a form of snobbery. It's a form of conditional attention, saying like, these things are worth our attention, these things are not. And, like the girls that get it, get it. The girls that don't, don't. I think this is one of the most impactful sections for me personally of the whole book. But Tibetan writes that this conditional attention pains us because our earliest memory of love is being cared for in a naked, impoverished condition. Babies cannot, by definition, repay their caretakers with worldly rewards. Insofar as they are loved and looked after, it is there for who they are. Identity understood in its barest, most stripped-down state, they are loved for or in spite of their uncontrolled, howling, and stubborn characters. Only as we mature does affection begin to depend on achievement, being polite, succeeding at school, and later acquiring rank and prestige. Such efforts may attract the interest of others, but the underlying emotional craving is not so much to dazzle because of our deeds as to recapture the tenor of the bountiful and discriminate petting we received in return for arranging wooden bricks on the kitchen floor for having a soft, plump body and wide, trusting eyes. Um, so yeah, Debutant is basically saying like, uh, one of the only reasons that people like still feed into snobbery today and like police it so much is that we are all looking for this approval and again this like love that we had unconditionally as a child but for some reason as we get older that unconditional love just for existing goes away and we have to do things to achieve status as a means to recapture that love or something that feels like that love because again like nothing will ever be like that sheer love for just existing in the world. And the last cause for status anxiety that he brings up is this idea of dependence. He develops throughout the entire first half of the book like this history of the bourgeoisie and when the relationship between like the working class and the ruling class really became corrupted across the world. And so in this section on dependence, he writes a little bit about like the history of factories and like labor laws. And he gets to this really interesting 
point where he talks about um, advanced capitalism and the relationship of uh, employer to employee or, you know, like the bourgeois versus laborers. Let me just read these, okay? <laughs> Financial self-interest has not, this theory holds, forever enjoyed exclusive rule. Rather, it is a relatively recent historical development, a product of the modern age and of advanced capitalism. Uh, in the feudal age, this thesis goes on, such self-interest was well counterbalanced by non-material considerations. Workers were thought of as members of their employer's extended families and commanded a fitting measure of loyalty and gratitude. Christian teachings helped to foster a general concern for the vulnerable and the hungry, promoting a tacit understanding that in difficult times they should be cared for. But such patriarchal communal relationships were, this self-same thesis alleges, destroyed by the bourgeoisie's ascent to power in the second half of the 18th century. The bourgeois class, hugely powerful through its tight grip on capital and technology, was interested only in wealth. Unsentimental and utilitarian, it viewed employees as nothing more than a means to its acquisitive ends. It cared little for their families and refused to be dictated by the needs of the sick or the old or the wide-eyed young. He goes on to talk about how this relationship between bourgeoisie and workers, or we can think of it now as like employer, employee, could like could realistically work if compassion was still a part of the equation, but it's not. In advanced capitalism, in late-staged advanced capitalism, we function as if the output is the only thing that matters. Um, but he brings up a really wonderful point that, um, and he pulls from Marx a little bit to say so, that um, the society we live in now does not treat labor as if it is human. It treats labor as if it is sheerly labor. And labor has emotional reactions. Labor has families. Labor has mental health. Because labor, again, isn't just labor, it's people. Unless, you know, we're talking about technology and then we could get into a whole different subsect there. Yeah, he essentially talks about how this idea of like a capitalist society or a meritocracy again is kind of corrupted by just the sheer pursuit of wealth and again like the neglecting of just regarding one another as human and worthy of compassion and patience and consideration. Those are the causes for status anxiety. Honestly, the one about lovelessness like really hit hard because i think as someone who you know like i've talked about it a lot ballet pageantry i'm like in that category of like burnout gifted kid um i've been given kind of positive feedback my whole life for things that i have done and things that i have produced um whereas i wonder what it would look like if we as a as a world were continually given positive feedback for just like existing in the world and like being compassionate to one another and regarding one another as like full people worthy of compassion. I don't want to go as in depth with the solutions again because I think I really want people to still be inspired to read the book. The solutions that he lists are philosophy, art, politics, religion, and bohemia. And each of these is kind of a coping mechanism for dealing with judgment and dealing with how the world perceives you and how the world either values or doesn't value you and why it does so. Um, so for example, within philosophy, he talks about this theory of um, accepting others' beliefs of yourself and kind of a filter you can use in your own mind to think like, why does this person think this about me? Is this objectively true? Is this not true? Like, 
what am I going to do with this? Am I going to accept this definition upon myself or am I going to reject it as a projection? The section on art is so brilliant and I think it's really applicable today to the prioritization of STEM as a field and this idea that the humanities aren't hard or the humanities don't add value, which again, the humanities are human. And I think that ties back to the idea of like labor and people as labor um, and removing that like emotional aspect and what that means. One thing he mentions in art that I think is so interesting is this idea of um, how being considered good across society is kind of a privilege and he actually uses emma by jane austen as an example to this like emma can be good she can be a matchmaker because she's rich and she's just like hanging out you know um taking care of her dad whereas someone who's from like a lower status doesn't have the same ability to be carefree and to be so invested in the lives of other people um i think that's definitely applicable today when you look at like philanthropy like the only people who really have the financial means to participate in impactful amounts of philanthropy are people who are already very very wealthy a lot of the time for unethical reasons which is really interesting and like what do we do with that ethical dilemma i don't know you tell me he also calls art he quotes um another writer to call art the criticism of life which i think is really incredible because yes like stem you know is figuring out like novel things about our bodies about or like novel to us things about our bodies about the world around us but art is figuring out like what we do with all of that like sure we know that I just finished up how the pill changes everything. So sure, we know that like women run on this 28 day cycle, but like, what do I as a person do with that? Like, how do I use that to interpret the world around me? Because at the end of the day, like, yes, I'm a body, but I'm a heart and I'm a soul and I'm a mind. And art is the thing that helps us figure out like what to do with all of that. Because that is so much more than just numbers and you know hypotheses and conclusions like that is almost intangible and art is the form that we use to try to make that tangible and to try to like figure out something if anything to do with all of that yeah <laughs> so the next solution politics okay i'm gonna read this quote from the politics section this is from jean-jacques rousseau from discourse on the origin of inequality from 1754 um, he says, in this text, Rousseau begins by charging that however independent-minded we may believe ourselves to be, we are in fact dangerously inept at deciphering our own needs. Our souls rarely articulate what they must have in order to be fulfilled, and when they do manage to mumble something, their requests are likely to be misfounded or contradictory rather than compare the mind with a body that is unfailingly correct in its sense of what it ought to consume for its own health. Rousseau invites us to draw an analogy instead to a body that cries out for wine when it needs water and insists that it wants to dance when it should truly be lying flat on a bed. Our minds are susceptible to the influence of external voices telling us what we require to be satisfied. Voices that may drown out the faint sounds emitted by our own souls and distract us from the careful, arduous tasks of accurately naming our priorities. De Baton goes on to connect it to uh, barbarism and how we are really not in touch with our own needs. Um, I think contemporarily we can take Rousseau's argument to be very relevant to what we deal with right now like we have 
politicians on social media every day, like political thinkers on social media every day, like even me talking to you, like I'm an external force telling you like my beliefs and how they relate to what I read. Whereas I think Dipaton Rousseau kind of pull out this idea of what it means to just like stop thinking about all of that and to listen to our own souls. Um, but again, like we have these feelings of status anxiety inevitably in the societies that we live in now and politics is a way of like trying to deal with that. But I think de Baton argues that a lot of the time our actions are, um, we like overshoot that. We aim for things that aren't really going to fulfill what we're yearning for at the end of the day, which is just that like need to be loved and to be content and to be treated with compassion. Religion, the section on religion is really interesting because um, he kind of talks about how the belief in an afterlife can help that feeling of status anxiety because if you believe that there's something like pure and equal in the next world, then you don't necessarily have to be like super stressed out about where you are in this world, unless you're a Protestant from the 1800s when um, people are telling you you have to be rich to go to heaven but um, it's, it's really lovely. And then the section on Bohemia, I believe has um, this idea of artists and their lifestyles being incompatible with the society we live in and the way it was affected by a bourgeoisie. Because since art isn't necessarily valued for the same reasons in the section on dependence, like we were looking for, you know, a tangible output. Um, artists' lives are not always compatible financially with the society that we live in. And de Baton talks about artists in uh, France, I believe, who were, you know, starving because they wanted to make art and they wanted to make a living making art. And as someone who is an artist myself, who has a lot of artist friends, that's something that we struggle with today is like this idea of selling out. Like, yes, I want to be an artist, but I inevitably have to find a way to commodify like other things because since society doesn't value art unless it is art that is valued within snobbery, like highbrow art, um, you have to be able to commodify yourself in a way that is considered like very traditional labor today. But um, that's Lane Dubaton's status anxiety at a glance and I really hope you read it. Like there's so many just interesting nuggets of information and fun facts that's thrown throughout the book. And um, Dubaton's work is just always like so satisfying for the brain. Like it's always such a treat to read and I feel so smart afterwards because he takes all of these like dense philosophers and breaks them down in a way that's very easy to understand in today's world with relevant examples for um, contemporary society. I highly, highly, highly recommend. And my personal like large takeaway from the book is that we are all so stressed out about what other people think of us all the time. And, you know, I think about contemporary rates of narcissism, narcissism not being um, evil or nefarious, but narcissism just being like, overly concerned with yourself and I wonder what it would look like for everyone to flip that switch in their head and if instead of being obsessed with how people are perceiving us all the time like what would it look like if we were really infatuated with this idea of just being compassionate towards the people around us treating them as human accepting them for who they are and supporting them and if everyone treated everyone like that 
things would be incredible and I don't think anyone would really struggle with status anxiety. Um, but is that a utopia? Potentially, probably. Maybe it's an afterlife, who knows? Um, I don't know, Elaine de Baton doesn't know, but what do you think? Thank you so much for listening. Since I moved to Germany, I don't have all my books with me, so I'm gonna try to figure out some ideas for future episodes, maybe with things as I'm reading them, but please, please, please send ideas, questions my way, and as always, I really appreciate you, Hot Literati, and I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. Bye!